Hello, readers. Dave Rubin is the creator and host of the wildly popular Rubin Report on YouTube, and he's now a published author. The new book is Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself and the Age of Unreason. Dave, thank you for the time today. What was your goal in writing Don't Burn This Book? Well, more than anything else, I wanted to show people that you can have a little bit of common sense in America in 2020 and you'll survive. You know, a lot of people seem to think that they have to be quiet about what they think. And it's not because they think anything odious or anything racist or anything bigoted or anything like that. They might be for states' rights. They might be for low taxes. They might just be for anything that's sort of against the woke progressive ideology of the day. And they've been kind of cowed into silence because the mob is on the way, and we all know about the outrage mob. We know about people losing their jobs. We know about people being mobbed on Twitter and everything else. And I wanted to show people that you can survive it, and not only will you survive it if you follow the right lessons that I'm trying to provide here, but you'll be better on the other side. Because if you're living life in fear in America in 2020, the freest country in the history of the world, well, you're not doing it right. Your grandparents had it a lot worse than you, and it's time to step up and start saying what you think and fighting for the things that you believe in. What is the perfect blend of Catholic and Jewish guilt, and how did that manifest itself inside of you in your early 20s? (laughs) So Catholic guilt, as I was told by a therapist once, is that if you do a sexual act that you're not supposed to or whatever you want to call it, that you feel guilty about the act itself. Jewish guilt is that you don't feel guilty necessarily about the act itself, but you feel guilty on how it will reflect on your parents and your family. And a therapist once told me that I had a perfect blend of those two things, which has always struck me in a strange way. But I think, you know, I mentioned that line because I think many people, they have guilt about things that they should not feel guilty about just because they hold political beliefs. This is in the portion of the book where I talk about the political closet which, you know, most people, when you say, oh, you're in the closet, they think that's usually related to sexuality. But I think a lot of people are in the closet about their politics right now. I think there are a lot of people who maybe watch Fox News and when their husband or wife comes in the room, they flip the channel or they don't want people knowing that they listen to the Ben Shapiro radio show or some other version of that. And you shouldn't feel guilty about exploring some other political ideas. Actually, you can listen to plenty of bad ideas, and that doesn't mean you're a bad person. You're trying to figure out your thing. So I think getting over this idea that you should feel guilty if you do something that's just sort of against mainstream is a really important first step here. You went through a personal wake-up call that occurred in three parts that you describe in this book. One had to do with your time working for the Young Turks TV. Another was due to the tragedy at the Charlie Hebdo Satirical Magazine headquarters. What is the third example, and how does it relate to the one person you dedicated this book to? (laughs) So a lot of people are asking me about this because the book is dedicated to Ben Affleck. And no, I have never met Ben Affleck. Maybe I'll meet him one day. You know, I didn't think he was the greatest Batman but we can save that for another time. In effect, what happened, this is about five years ago, and a lot of people woke up to this very moment. So that's why I included it in the book, because it wasn't just me that woke up at this time. I know that there are thousands, if not millions of people across the world. I've talked to people literally in Egypt who woke up at the exact same time. Your listeners may remember this. Sam Harris, who is a neuroscientist and a guy into meditation, was on real time with Bill Maher, and Ben Affleck was on the other side of the table. And what they were discussing was, the difference between ideas and people, meaning, of course, you should be able to criticize any set of ideas, whether it's religious 
or whether it's a political party set of ideas or anything else, you can criticize ideas without being bigoted towards people. So in other words, if you criticize the Old Testament, if you say, oh, these ideas of the Old Testament are terrible, nobody in their right mind would think that means you hate all Jews. Or likewise, if you did the same thing to the New Testament, no one would think you hate all Christians. And in this case, they were talking about the ideas in the Quran. And Sam and Bill's point was that you can criticize the ideas in the Quran, and that doesn't mean you hate all Muslims. And of course, you shouldn't hate all Muslims. And Ben got very emotional, and he was red in the face and banging his hands on the table. And in effect, he called Bill Maher and Sam Harris gross and racist. And that caught fire all over the media. And suddenly, everyone in the lefty media, so I'm talking about HuffPo and BuzzFeed and the usual suspects, they were all calling Bill Maher and Sam Harris racist. And it was like Bill Maher was the standard bearer, the most outspoken lefty we've had in America for probably three decades now. And suddenly, because an A-list actor overly emoted, instead of telling the truth or having anything close to nuance, suddenly Bill Maher was a racist. And when I saw that happen, it was a perfect example of what I had been thinking for the last year, that somehow the left had gone from reason and openness and thoughtfulness to something highly emotional that is quite counter to any of those ideals. And it was such a perfect example of it because it was like this A-list, everyone knows Affleck. Like it wasn't just some random actor. And also I had been a big admirer and fan of Bill Maher for years. So to watch the left go after him when he's been the the guy on the left, it was pretty incredible. So I credit Ben Affleck for my wake-up call because if it wasn't for his overly emotional, slightly crazed response, I don't know that I fully would have woke up. You know, this whole idea of name-calling and throwing labels at people because you disagree with their opinion is something that does terrible damage to this idea of truly open dialogue. How did a transgender Holocaust denier bolster your opinion of the need for truly open dialogue? (laughs) So this is one of my favorite stories in the whole book. I did a talk at the University of Arizona, and I was with Michael Shermer from Skeptic Magazine, who's a great guy, wonderful thinker. And we were given a talk, and at the beginning of these talks, there's a couple hundred kids there, and I always do a silly thing where I say, you know, applaud if you're liberal, applaud if you're conservative, libertarian. I just try to get everybody to relax a little bit and show each other that, you know, we're all kind of the same. And then at the end, I always do a thing, you know, applaud if you're a Nazi. And usually that just gets a big laugh. And in this case, someone actually raised their hand in the back and said, I'm a Nazi. So I said, all right, well, this is interesting. I said, you know what, let us talk. We're going to do a talk for about an hour, and then at the end... When we do the q and I'd like to offer you the mic first, and you're welcome to share any thoughts with us. So the person was totally respectful during the talk. We start the Q&A, and it turns out that she's a Holocaust denier, and she went into a whole bunch of crazy theories. Now, fortunately, I was with Michael Shermer, and Michael is famous for debunking all conspiracy theories. This is what he's really famous for, what he's done so well, including Holocaust denial. So he calmly answered all of her questions, rebutted all of her confused ideas. And she didn't accept any of those things as true, of course, because that's part of the way the conspiracy theories operate. Whenever you give them something true, if anything, it just causes them to double down. But what he did do quite effectively was everyone else in the room that was listening thought, oh, here's a conspiracy theory, and here's someone calmly explaining that it is not true and using facts and really laying it out clearly. What we didn't find out until right around that moment was it happened to be a trans person. So it was a trans Holocaust denier, (laughs) which the Nazis were not that kind to trans people or gay people or virtually any minority. And it was just a curious moment because you don't expect things like this. But I would say more than anything else, this is why the essence of my book is about looking at people as individuals. 
because I only view that person based on their thoughts and their actions. I don't condemn all trans people to be Nazis or something like that. Is the tribal two-party political system that rules this country capable of truly free thinking? That's a good one. I think it is getting increasingly difficult to consider yourself a free thinker if you really have an R or a D next to your name, particularly on the D side, because what's happened with the Democrats is that the progressives have sort of broken in. And I don't know if you're a Star Wars guy, but they've basically executed Order 66 on the liberals. (laughs) So there are very few sort of old school liberals left. And when I say old school liberals, I mean, JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That, in many ways, is the reverse. It's the 180 reverse of what Bernie and the socialists say. They say, oh, country, give me, give me, give me. I wish there were old school liberals. There aren't. So on the Democratic side, it's like you have to sort of agree with everything they say. You have to call America racist. You have to just pick all of these opinions. You can't have any limits on abortion, incredibly high taxes and the rest of it, or they will purge you out, which is sort of what happened to me. I would say on the Republican side, there is a version of that related to Trumpism. But I'm more enthused that on the right, look, Trump's biggest backer, his biggest ally in the Senate is Rand Paul, who is our biggest libertarian. That shows a good sign because Trump is not really a libertarian. Trump likes using the levers of power. But his ally here is a libertarian who doesn't want to use power. So I see something interesting brewing on the right where you've got sort of more traditionally old school conservatives. Then you've got the libertarian wing. That's kind of where I'm at. And then you have all these disaffected lefties who are suddenly waking up and going, oh, maybe you guys on the right aren't that bad. So I see something more open on the right, but that's not to say that it's perfect. And both sides have their own version of, hey, agree with us or shut up. Well, I was fascinated to read the case that you make for the left really losing its grip on liberalism. You just touched on it right there. And also your explanation of classical liberalism In reading about classical liberalism, it did strike me as similar in a lot of ways to libertarian. Are those two ideology siblings? Oh, they're absolutely siblings. And that's one of the biggest questions I get. Dave, when you talk about classical liberalism, it sounds like libertarianism, because really you have to believe in two things. Individual rights, meaning that everyone that's a legal member of our country should have the exact same rights, period, regardless of your race or your gender or your sexuality or the rest of it. So that's a very libertarian idea. And then the only other thing, in effect is that you want competition to solve things when possible, but every now and again you understand the government has to do something. The only real difference between that and sort of a pure libertarian approach is that libertarians really are always trying to get rid of the government at all costs. And I actually find that intellectually really interesting, and I love debating libertarians. I find libertarians to be the most thoughtful, clean-thinking sort of group of political thinkers that we have. I just consider classical liberalism a slightly more realistic approach. It's like we Mm. can't disassemble all of this stuff. But I would say one other thing, which is that if you just look to our founding documents, I mean, the way we were supposed to be set up, look at the Constitution, look at the Bill of Rights, read the Federalist Papers. They were classical liberals. All that they wanted was we're escaping a king. We want local control, meaning the states should do as much as they can. And then the federal government has to do a little bit of stuff. It has to control the borders. It has to make sure the states aren't warring. So I think most of us actually are classical liberals, but the word liberalism has been really butchered. I don't know that I can fully save the word liberalism, but at the end of the day, if someone says to me, Dave, you're a libertarian, I don't have a real problem with that at all. What's the story of Joseph Berger? So Joseph Berger is the father of my uncle, so my dad's sister's husband, my uncle Jerry, his father, 
was a Holocaust survivor, and I grew up with several Holocaust survivors in my family, actually, and then lost many other family members. And Joe Berger, who lived fortunately into his 90s, so I knew him until I was a young teen, he was in Germany in World War II. And as things got bad, he realized that he was going to lose his kids, his family, that most likely they weren't going to survive. And he was desperate to figure out how he could save his daughter. And he gave her the name Mary because he wanted his daughter to think that she was Christian. And he wanted to do that because he was going to drop her off at a convent and just leave her there and hope that somebody would take her, that they would take her in and that he would leave and that maybe if he could survive the war, he could come back and get her. So one day he left her at a park. He waited. He saw the nuns pick her up and they brought her into the convent and she stayed there for years. And then after the war, he survived his survivor story, which I get into a little bit in the book, is just absolutely staggering. His first wife was killed in the war. He goes back after the war to tell them that it's his daughter, Mary. And this is now five years later. And she was you know, maybe four. Now she's nine. And she had a scar on the inner part of her thigh that he described, but they refused to give him back to her. And she didn't really remember him. And he had to go in and kidnap his own daughter. And he did it. And you can only imagine the scars of generations that it caused within the family. And even to this day, some of that stuff still exists. He was shot during the war. And until the day he died, he had a bullet lodged in him because it was too close to his heart, I think. I mean, this is just one of the quite literally millions of just unbelievable stories that you hear that you go, these things can't be true. And I mentioned that story really because everyone that's in America right now, you came from people that were generations beyond you that had it so much worse. Not everyone had Holocaust survivors in their family, but some people, their ancestors went through slavery. Some people, their ancestors went through famine or pogroms or some other thing. But that's why everyone came to America to make a better life. And I think too many of us forget that we've got it pretty damn good in the United States right now. Dave, you've dabbled in stand-up throughout your life. Who are some of your all-time favorite stand-up comedians? Oh, man, now we can switch to funny mode right off the Holocaust. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did stand-up for 12 years in New York City. And it's funny because now when I toured, I toured with Jordan Peterson. When I do speaking things, if I find we have an open night in the city, I'll just contact the club and I'll do a night. You know, I can sell out a club now. And I go up and I'm not even, I'm running a circus more than doing sort of traditional stand-up. I get up there and do a lot of crowd work and I give away t-shirts and I just have fun with the crowd because I don't need it. And when you need stand-up, in many ways, it's the worst part of stand-up. It's like you want to do stand-up when you don't need it anymore because then you can be truly free. But the comics that influence me most, I mean, Carlin to me is the king of comedy. George Carlin, I think the breadth of work, the, the ability to say truth with humor. And of course, he was a linguistic master like nobody else. So I would say he influenced me more than anybody else. The guy who actually sort of sparked my interest in comedy, I mean, I remember it. I was seven years old in 1983. I remember exactly where I was sitting right in front of the TV in my parents' den was watching Bill Cosby himself. Now, I know that when you (laughs) mention Bill Cosby now, it has a whole other connotation. But Bill Cosby did wake up a whole generation of comedians because that special that I'm sure you've seen, it's that famous special where he's sitting and he's wearing that brown suit and he does the chocolate cake routine and he does the dentist routine and everything else. It's basically comedy perfection. And of course, what has happened to him since and what he did goes without saying that it was some pretty horrific stuff. But comedy is a truly beautiful thing. And in many ways, the things that I write about in this book about free speech, 
are directly related to comedy. Because let's not forget Lenny Bruce, who was really the first great true comic, not sort of a jokey comic, but like true social comic, was arrested on free speech violations. And George Carlin was actually arrested with him that famous night. A lot of people don't know that. So comedy is deeply, deeply important. And especially in a time like we're in right now, where everything feels so out of control. And there's so many people who would love to just control every bit of our lives. It's like we need good comedy in many ways now more than we have in our lifetime. I read a word in this book that I've never encountered before, catastrophizing. What does catastrophizing mean? And have we catastrophized (laughs) our response to COVID-19? Oh, great question. I'm glad you asked that. So the idea of catastrophizing, obviously, is that there's this certain set of people that because everything is based in emotion, they create catastrophes constantly. Everything is the worst thing that's going to ever happen. And we go from one catastrophe to the other. We go from Russian collusion to Ukrainian this to the Jesse Smollett thing to the Covington kids. We go to these things that every moment it's somehow another worldwide changing event. And that's actually just not how the world works. We happen to be in a true pandemic right now. And I think part of the reason that people are having trouble gauging how either scary or important or impactful it is, is because we've done too much of the boy who cried wolf with so many other things. So I think at the moment, it's hard to say whether we're catastrophizing it. Look, I mean, the numbers of COVID deaths and infections is way lower than anyone anticipated, right? Either the numbers were anticipated to be too high, or we've done an incredible job or some combination of both. But we should be thrilled, actually, that things are going so well. But to really answer your question, what I am concerned about, look, I'm here in California. I've got a progressive governor, Gavin Newsom, who's the same guy that was the mayor of San Francisco, and he ruined that town. And, you know, I've got a progressive mayor in Eric Garcetti. They just announced a beach closure in the last couple of days. It's like, wait a minute, we're watching all the numbers go down. Good people have been trapped in their houses for two months. Now, that's not to say we should all just get out there and do whatever we want and pack the beaches and pack all the restaurants. But you have to give us honest answers. Tell us, okay, well, instead of closing the beaches, beaches can only be at half capacity. You got to make sure you're not parking next to somebody else. Only groups of four or less can come. You know, give us something that's kind of mature. Exactly. Because that's what people want. But instead, they give us this catastrophized version of it, which is it's all or nothing. It's not, nope, beaches closed. We're not going to explain why. And I think that that's really dangerous. What in the hell did Newsweek mean when they encouraged people to have a woke Thanksgiving? (laughs) Well, if you're having a woke Thanksgiving, of course, you have to talk about the Native Americans, which that in and of itself is fine. You know, we should be honest about our history. Being honest about history is one of the most important things you can do, because then you would be more well equipped not to repeat it. But what they really meant by a woke Thanksgiving is talk about the dangers of Donald Trump and make everything political and talk about oppression and all of these things. And actually, I would say that you want to have the least woke Thanksgiving you have. You know, we don't have, especially right now while we're trapped in our houses, it's like, won't it be pretty great when we get to see our folks again, get to see our siblings and our nephews and nieces and whatever else it is and sit around the table? And if you feel the need to make everything political, you're actually the one that's making the mistake. I assure you, when I get to sit down with my parents again and my brother and sister and their families and kids, politics is going to be the last thing that I want to talk about. I want to talk about how everybody's doing We're doing, I'm sure you're doing something like it. A lot of people are, you know, we're doing weekly or every other week Zoom calls and trying to have dinner with each other sometimes and the rest of it. The idea that everything has to be permanently political, it's not only dangerous, but it's depressing. I love politics. I'm a political beast. I love what I do. I love that people care about what I think. 
but it is not the end all be all for me. And I think if we don't have holidays where we can just be thankful, just sit there, eat some delicious food, be with the people you love, watch some football, drink some wine and be thankful without having to belabor every political point. If we can't do that, we've really lost something that is in many ways the very essence of America. Yeah, you do a great job of writing about how unhealthy it is to become politically obsessed, but people are going to have to buy the book to read more about that one. Last thing, Dave, in your acknowledgments at the end of the book, you thank Clyde Drexler. Why? Oh, I love Clyde the Glide. He was really my first hero. I remember watching Clyde. I was actually on a friend's dad's boat in 1990, and I was we were watching the Western Conference Finals, and it was the Blazers versus the Spurs. I had never really watched basketball before. It's a very famous game. The Blazers ended up winning. Rod Strickland on the Spurs throws a terrible pass at the end. But I saw this guy, Clyde, and he's dunking. He's jumping over everybody. He's got this sick finger roll, but he kind of has his head down, and he never showboats. He never screaming. He's not pumping his fist. He looked to me like the coolest guy I had ever seen. And, you know, his nickname was Clyde the Glide because he could glide through the air, and he was really the number two to Jordan all of those years, but he played most of his years up in Portland, so didn't get the mass media coverage. But I just thought he was just a pro. The guy just didn't do any of the showboating and all that stuff that has become so associated with sports. And he truly became my hero. And I modeled, when I played basketball, I modeled my game after him. And I think the calm way that I deal with a lot of these issues came from watching this guy. You find people in life that you like something about them. Sometimes you don't even know why. And I'm happy to say that eventually my agent actually got me in touch with Clyde and we text every now and again. I'd love to sit down with him. He's not particularly political or anything like that. But, of course, he's a Texas guy. You know, he ended up winning a championship yeah. with the Rockets in Houston, and he was part of Five Slamma Jamma college years. So he just taught me something about the art of subtlety. Do what you do, but you don't have to scream about it. You don't have to be showy about it. Just put in the work. And as I say in that acknowledgement, it's like he won a championship in his 12th season. He had already lost two NBA finals, and people thought he was kind of on the end of his career. But he kept going and kept going and kept going. And that's something I've tried to incorporate in my life. If you just keep going and working hard, you can win that championship, whatever that means to you. Dave Rubin is the creator and host of the wildly popular Rubin Report on YouTube. And he's now a published author. The new book is Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in the Age of Unreason. Dave, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this book. Really appreciate it, man. Thanks. Really enjoyed the chat.